eyes of his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor, but a leper. And the Syrians had gone out on raids and had brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel. She waited on Naaman's wife, and she said to her mistress, If only my master were with the prophet who was in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. And Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus said the girl who was from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he departed and took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. Then he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which said, Now be advised, when this letter comes to you, that I have sent Naaman, my servant, to you, that you may heal him of his leprosy. And it happened, when the king of Israel read the letter, that he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends a man to me to heal him of his leprosy? Therefore, please consider and see how he seeks a quarrel with me. So it was, when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Please, let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. Then Naaman went with his horses and chariot and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. But Naaman became furious and went away and said, Indeed, I said to myself, He will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy. Are not the Arbana and Farfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. And his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, Wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. And he returned to the man of God, he and all his aides, and came and stood before him, and he said, Indeed, now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Now, therefore, please take a gift from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. So Naaman said, Then if not, please, let your servant be given two mule loads of earth, for your servant will no longer offer either burnt offering or sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord. Yet in this thing, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the temple of Rimmon to worship there, and he leans on my hand, and I bow down in the temple of Rimmon, when I bow down in the temple of Rimmon, may the Lord please pardon your servant in this thing. Then he said to him, Go in peace. So he departed from him a short distance. Amen. Amen. Father, we come to you seeking your guidance, your illumination, that you would open up the eyes of our understanding to, uh, to know and to apply your word. I pray that you would take the feebleness of clay and, Father, that your glory would shine through. Be honored as we continue to worship you in our responses to your scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen. It can be a real difficult thing to 
feel insignificant and like you've got nothing to contribute. Uh, Maybe uh, you've had a time of being an invalid lying in a bed and you're thinking, I can't do anything and I feel pretty useless here. Or it might be uh, a young child who thinks, nobody listens to me. Nobody ever pays attention to me and uh, I feel like I'm a nothing. Or it may be that uh, you're in uh, a situation maybe of a a marriage that's bad and you're far less effective being married than you were when you were single. And the Scripture indicates it really ought to be the, the exact opposite. There ought to be a synergy there. You feel trapped and you're thinking, what in the world can I do? Or you're in a large corporation working and you feel like you're such a tiny little cog in this huge machine that there's not much difference you can make. I think most of us have gotten frustrated from time to time with uh, how America is going downhill. We wonder, all of the efforts that we're doing just feel like a drop of water in the ocean. How can we make any difference in America? And we want our lives to count. I think God's built it into us to want our lives to count. And uh, so we feel a bit frustrated. Well, I want to assure you this morning that no matter how insignificant you may feel, God has a divine purpose for your life and your life is absolutely critical for what God is doing. We've seen this in the past Providential History Festival. God is in the most small, the most insignificant details of our lives and we by faith need to receive that. When my parents were uh, first out uh, in Ethiopia on the mission field, we had... um, uh, they had spent 30 years of their life in Ethiopia. Well, there was a young girl who had been newly converted to the Lord, and she wanted to be a witness and see some of her other family members and uh, her village coming to Christ. But she just nobody would listen to her. She didn't have much that she felt that she could offer. One day when she was going home, it started raining, and so she started running to try to get home and not be in the cold and she was shivering it was pretty cold she suddenly slipped in the mud fell back hit her head on a rock and knocked herself out we don't know how long she was uh, unconscious but when she came to there was a leopard that was lying on her chest breathing into her face and she didn't freak out I think some of you guys probably start screaming or something but uh, she didn't freak out she just prayed to the Lord said Lord thank you that I'm a Christian And uh, if you choose to have me eaten by this leopard, I'm looking forward to being with you in heaven. But please, some of my family still does not know about Jesus. Would you spare my life so that I could tell them about the Lord? Well, the leopard immediately got off of her, walked away, looked back at her and stared at her for a while, then walked a little ways further, looked back at her and stared, and then walked off into the jungle. Well, you can bet she was rejoicing in the Lord's provision in this. Not only had that leopard kept her warm (laughs) during all of that freezing rain, but she now had a renewed vision of God's ability to provide in her village. Well, she went back to her village and told this story, and as a result of that testimony, there were a number of people who came to a saving knowledge of the Lord. Now, here was a little girl. She felt, I'm nothing. Nobody listens to me. And yet God has his divine purposes for little girls. And every one of us, I think, 
needs to have a confidence. God has a purpose for me individually. Well, that was certainly true of this little girl in 2 Kings chapter 5. As a result of these few words that escaped from her mouth, Naaman came to a saving knowledge of the Lord. And uh, we know from the New Testament that this was a genuine conversion that Naaman had experienced. And then as a result of his testimony, King Ben-Hadad in chapter 8 acknowledges that the God of Israel was the true God of all the earth. You know, it's doubtful that that was a genuine conversion, but at least he was much more respectful to the God of Israel, which made an ending of hostilities between Israel and Syria, which enabled Elisha to be able to more freely move back and forth in the country. We see some of his travels there. But what a blessing it would be for this girl to know there was somebody in heaven because she had been bold enough just to speak a few words into the life of her mistress, who no doubt was crying at that time. And what I want to do as we look at this marvelous story is begin by thinking about what the aspirations of this girl were. Now, I can assure you her aspirations were not to be a slave, right? I think we'd be pretty confident of that. She probably was like most Israelite girls. She wanted to get married to some Prince Charming and have a nice little cottage by a farm, you know, or maybe by the seaside and be able to serve the Lord through hospitality and through being a godly wife and a mother. And all of those hopes and dreams were completely dashed to the ground when she was taken away from Israel, taken into captivity. She wanted her life to count, and now it seemed like all of her dreams had been dashed to the ground. Well, God did make her life count, but it was in a different way than what she had initially anticipated. And her life counted not because she was successful in the eyes of the world. Anybody in the world who looked on would say, yeah, there's not much success going on there. But her life counted because she was malleable and she was being formed into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ and being given an attitude that uh, was powerfully used on the earth. And we're going we're gonna to highlight her mission's attitude. Missions is first and foremost I, foremost, I think, an attitude of the heart, not so much an attitude of how much success that we have out there. And I'm going to be going through ten missions attitudes that this lady has that I wish every one of us could have. If you had these missions attitudes, you'd begin to see all kinds of opportunities opening up uh, before your eyes. First attitude, we must be concerned about the needs of others. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 24. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. That takes grace. We tend to seek our own. That's our human nature. It takes grace to be thinking about the needs of others when we've got so many needs ourselves. And this maid could have so easily become uh, ingrown, feeling sorry for herself, wrapped up in self-pity that she wouldn't even recognize the needs of others, let alone care about the needs of others. And I think it's happened to us at some point or another, most of us, that we have become so wrapped up with the overwhelming burdens that we're feeling, we don't notice some of the needs out there that we could minister to. I want you to look at verse 2. And the Syrians had gone out on raids and had brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel. She waited 
on Naaman's wife. Then she said to her mistress, the implication is that there's not a whole lot of time that has transitioned between the time of her capture and the time that this story uh, takes place. Now, you kids, I think you can uh, just try to imagine being captured, taken away from your parents, and you have witnessed the, the horror of warfare. You've seen people being killed. And here you've been drug away from your parents uh, screaming and crying and you don't know where, what, where your parents are, what's happened to them. You're worried about them. They're worried about you. But now, emotionally exhausted, you're put into a position where you have to serve Naaman's wife. What would you feel like if you saw that Naaman's uh, leprosy had come upon his body? You'd probably think, serves him right. I wish his wife would get leprosy too, right? It'd be something along those lines. And so I hope you can see that this concern that she has is a God-given concern. It's really not something that is uh, natural uh, to have. She says, if only my master were with the prophet who was in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. Now, we need to pray for this kind of a burden. It's not something we can stir up within ourselves. And if you want to see this burden in its maximum expression, read Romans 9, first couple of verses, and you'll see the Apostle Paul who says, I am not lying. I'm telling the truth. I mean, three times he emphasizes, I know you're going to have a hard time believing this, but I wish that I could be accursed from Christ if it would mean that my brothers would be saved. I can't say that. That's an incredible statement. And he says this is the kind of burden for evangelism that God had placed upon the Apostle Paul. It's God-given. We cannot manufacture it. But we can pray to God, Lord, help me to have the kind of concern for my brothers and sisters. Help me to have the kind of concern for those who are around me. And once you gain that burden, it's going to open your eyes in a way to missions opportunities you had not seen before. It'll help you get rid of the wallowing and self-pity. And it'll give, give you an attitude of putting others before yourself. Second principle is that you must not be ashamed of God. Now, when she said, if only my master were with the prophet who was in Samaria, what's she implying? She's implying that the prophets of Syria don't have the right message. They certainly don't have the right God and that the God of Syria is impotent. He's nothing like the God of Israel. Now, she does it tactfully. She, she does it very delicately, but it's very clear she is bold in the contrast between her own God and the God of Syria. She is willing to take risks for the honor of God, and the risk is that she might offend somebody with her statement. She was not ashamed of the power of the gospel. What about you? I think sometimes we Christians can learn to be ashamed from other Christians or we can learn to be ashamed because uh, we've been rebuked enough times by unbelievers who think we're nuts, you know, and we talk about the things of God. But that's not the natural uh, uh, heart of a person who's a brand new believer. He's so excited about being freed from his sins, he wants to be telling everybody about the neat things that God has done for him. And I think this is the most natural thing for our young children to do as well. And when the Teepkins uh, were members of our uh, fellowship before they moved uh, to the West Coast, uh, he, he was telling me how as kids 
just seemed to be so bold in talking about the Lord everywhere they went. They'd be in the grocery store singing, Jesus loves me, this I know, an amazing grace, and, and just talking to everybody. Do you love Jesus? And, and they had no sense of shame whatsoever. Now, I have to admit that in our early marriage, I would cringe sometimes at the things that my kids would say in the grocery store or to our next-door neighbors. Our neighbors were Roman Catholics, and uh, they would talk about praying to Mary, and our kids would say, that's idolatry. You need to repent of that. And uh, <laughs> they would uh, say, you know, that you need to become uh, a Christian. We are Christians. No, you need to believe in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation or you're going to hell. I mean, they were so bold in their witness. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm not going to tell them not to say that. But inside I'm thinking, this is not very tactful, you know. And yet, they were wonderful witnesses. And I wonder sometimes if the degree to which we are ashamed to name the name of Christ is not coming from true tactfulness. It's coming from a shame of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think there's a lot that we could learn from our children about being bold uh, for the cause of Christ. Bold for what um, the Lord is doing. Jesus said, "...whoever humbles himself as this little child..." is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, I think you could see how it would be very easy for this maid to think, boy, do I say anything? I don't want to be offensive. But she just lets it out. This is part of her life. It's who she is. And she speaks it. We need to do the same. Third principle is that we must be convinced that God has the answers to this world's needs. As I'll mention in a, in a, a little bit, I don't think most Christians really, really are convinced that um, the Bible provides the answers for every subject. But here's a situation where God has providentially put a need into Naaman's heart. And what this maid does is she says, well, look to the Lord. The Lord is the one who can answer all of our needs. Um, I think any one of us can do that if your neighbor is sick got cancer or something, you can go up and say, you know, I heard that you, you got cancer and I just feel so badly for you. I've learned that we need to take all of our needs to the Lord. Do you mind if I pray for you? You can do something simple like that. And you know what? People, as we've gone through our neighborhood, people are willing to have you pray for their needs. It's very few people who will refuse that. And so we can direct them and their needs to the Lord. Now, her attempt to get Naaman to look to God almost got derailed in verses 5 through 7. Take a look down there. So the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. Where is he looking? He's not looking to the Lord. He's looking to the king of Israel. And I think many evangelicals have gotten into this trap of looking to a messianic state. You know, the federal government seems to be the answer for everything. We have health care issues instead of seeking to fix them according to biblical rules ourselves and taking personal responsibility, no, we go to, the, we go to the, 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 the federal government. And the federal government has become more and more bloated because we are idolaters. We are not looking to the true God of Israel. Continuing on. So he departed and took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. What he's hoping to do is buy his way out of his predicament. And there are many ways in which we tend to look to our own resources rather than looking to the Lord for help. 
Well, God in this story brings him to a place where he realizes he can contribute absolutely nothing. Nothing in my hands I bring. Verse 6, Then he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which said, Now be advised that when this letter comes to you, that I have sent Naaman my servant to you, that you may heal him of his leprosy. Now both the king and Naaman are looking to man for their solutions. And in verse 7, it indicates that uh, even the king of Israel seems to have a lack of faith here. And it happened when the king of Israel read the letter that he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends a man to me to heal him of his leprosy? Therefore, please consider and see how he seeks a quarrel with me. So it was when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Please, let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. Here is the point. God tailor makes our situations, our environment, all of our circumstances, our personality, all of the things that go into making us up, and He does so so that we can take advantage of those missions opportunities in some fashion, and all of us can do that. Now, God's not brought an amen into your life, but He's brought other things into your lives uh, that uh, are very, very similar. He may have brought a person who is grieving over an abortion that she has had. And uh, he may have brought into your life a person who is a, 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 you know, a, a chronic uh, drunkard uh, or ha- has had uh, problems with compulsive gambling or financial issues or marriage issues. I mean, there's many different needs that the Lord sovereignly brings into people's lives and both the severity and the goodness of God lead to repentance. And so we need to be thinking of these things. What's God doing in these people's lives and how can I direct them to the Lord? Let me give you one strange example. When I went to Bible college, a good friend of mine told me that when he was an unbeliever, he was going through some incredible financial Uh, issues with his uh, business and a friend of his gave him a book by Gary North called Introduction to Biblical Economics. Now you might think, economics, what does that have to do with the gospel? But as this guy started reading that book and realizing the comprehensive um, uh, plans that the Bible has to respond to the needs of man in economics, he was blown away and he became a Christian through biblical economics. Okay, in a sense, what was happening is is he had been directed to the prophet of Israel. This is the prophet of Israel, the scriptures, right, that were laid out uh, in that in that book. And I think every one of us uh, has opportunities to do something like that. It may be giving a person a book on marriage issues that they are struggling with and saying, look, the Bible has helped me uh, work through some of these same problems that you're experiencing. Why don't you take this book, read it, and let's get together in a week or two and discuss it. You need to be convinced, though, beyond a shadow of a doubt that God's Word and God's grace has all the answers men need for their most asked questions. How do you send a Naaman to the prophet in Syria when we don't have any prophets? Well, the prophets God wanted us to read have been recorded for us in the Scriptures here. And we've got to start learning how to direct people to the Bible. Now, if you're not skilled yourself in doing it, you can always say, look, 
Here's a videotape that I want you to listen to. Or here's a seminar that we could go to together. Or here's a church service that I want to invite you to. Or here's a book that I want you to read. But make sure they're biblical books. There's so much stuff that goes in the name of Christianity that is humanism just with a few verses that are cloaked around it that I need to warn you when you're building your libraries and every one of you better have a lending library uh, that you can use for the advancement of the glory of God. I think it's absolutely imperative that families build building, uh, uh, build uh, lending libraries and get your kids started early with lending libraries. But... Um, as you do it, make sure that your books truly are directing people to the Scriptures, not to psychology. It's not the King of Israel who could help. It's not the psychologist who could help. It is the prophet in Israel. Okay, It's the Word of God that we need to be directing them to. Now, once you're convinced that the Bible does have the foundations for every area of life, and it speaks to all of life, you begin to see opportunities for missions outreach everywhere. Fourth principle is that your life of service must match your words of service. Okay, you've got to have a lifestyle that matches your words. So, if you give your neighbor a book on marriage, hoping that you're going to, you know, that they'll get their marriage pulled back together again, but your marriage is a shambles and you're not doing anything about it, they're not going to take it very seriously, are they? Now, he's not saying that you have to have your life completely put together. In fact, if you claim that your marriage is perfect, uh, you're probably going to discourage them rather than encourage them. Uh, the better thing to do is to say, look, we've gone through some of the same struggles that you, you've gone through. Here's some of the issues that we've faced. And as we've repented of those and if we've put into practice some of the biblical blueprints, God has transformed our marriage. And I want to give you hope that He can help you too. Don't give up. Use this. Go to this seminar. Go, to this, uh, go through this book and uh, let's talk uh, through this. Now, if this girl were a liar, her mistress probably wouldn't have taken her seriously, right? If she were lazy, she might have thought, oh, she's just trying to get out of work. You know, when we're gone to Israel, she'll be able to have vacation. Uh, if uh, she were always trying to run away or was angry or bitter, uh, the, the mistress might have thought, this is just a cruel joke. She's just trying to get even with us. But because she had a lifestyle that matched her words. Her mistress immediately took her seriously with what she, what she said. A good lifestyle without testimony does not save, and a testimony without lifestyle to back it up is empty. Now, another condition that we've got to have is a burden for the lost. The Hebrew in verse 3, for if only, is achale, achale in the Hebrew, which means Oh, that with an exclamation mark. Okay? Oh, that. My master was with the prophet. And we need to bring the oh back into the gospel. We've got to have a burden. And where do we get a burden from? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. We have Him living that through us. We have His Spirit transforming our insides. But when God gives to you a yearning for the lost, it begins to be more and more upper up, uppermost, it's on the forefront of your mind, okay? And uh, you begin to see opportunities for witnessing everywhere that you go. The sixth principle is that we must not give in to resentment and the bitterness. Now, if you had been captured, and maybe you'd take, been taken off to Cuba, and uh, you were 
a maid or some slave or servant for Fidel Castro's uh, wife, uh, would bitterness have captured your heart? Because that would be such a painful tragedy, trauma to be going through, to be yanked away from your parents and all of the the troubles and trials and they're telling you to do this, you know, comb my hair and I'll sweep the floor and I'll take out the trash and do this and do that and quit the crying. If you don't stop crying, I'm going to give you something to cry about and just no sympathy for you as you're mourning the loss of your parents. It would be so easy for bitterness to creep in and anger and hostility to the point where you wanted them to be killed. This is what happened with Jonah. Uh, Jonah... Uh, had mercy upon the Phoenicians. This was not a racial issue. Uh, he, he could have just said, I don't care. Well, I'm, I want to go down and die anyway. I'll let them go down with me. But no, he told them to throw him overboard. He told them about the true God of Israel. They ended up worshiping the true God of Israel. It was the Ninevites that he was so upset with. And the reason he was upset with those Ninevites is because they were one of the most cruel, barbaric of peoples ever. We talked about that, was it, last Sunday. And... When he saw the tortures that had happened in his hometown and he saw the atrocities of those Assyrians, every time he thought about it, it sickened him. And, and this old churning of those ghastly feelings came up within him. He had become bitter, bitter and angry and completely blinded to what God was wanting to do in that situation. That can easily happen to us. You've got to get rid of bitterness. And there's Many steps that you can take, but one little cheat list that you can go to very, very quick is Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. Uh, and he gives a whole bunch of steps of things that you can do. Bless people when they curse you. Do good to those who do bad to you. Uh, and, and what you're doing is you're declaring a war of love. And he says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And the reason you're doing it First of all, is so that you can have the heart of Christ and not be conquered by them. But secondly, so that you can reach out to them. The seventh principle is don't offer excuses as to why you can't be involved in missions. Uh, I think most of us can think up all kinds of great excuses as to why we're not being a witness, why we're not engaged in this ministry or that hospitality, the other thing. Uh, very easy to do it. But if anyone had a good reason to not be a witness, I think it would be this girl here. Because in Assyrian culture, these maids were meant to be seen, not heard. And, you know, she's a foreigner anyway. And, uh, and she's just, you know, just a little girl. But you know what? God says that little girls and little boys can have a profound testimony and a help to their parents in the ministry that the parents are engaging in. For example, when your parents invite uh, some neighbors over and uh, you're... Uh, trying to engage them, or maybe it's just church people, how, you're, how you children relate to the other children who are coming in can either turn them off forever from the gospel or it can attract them. You can have a profound impact on how your family is successful or not successful with the gospel. You've got to be thinking, how do my facial expressions communicate the love of Christ? Practice in the mirror. So that you're not looking scary, you know. You, 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 want, you want to be part of the, the corporate ministry of your family. So don't come up with excuses. Here's some excuses she could have had. I'm a captive. I'm a victim of my circumstances. 
and there's not a whole lot that I could do. Oh, sure, I would engage in hospitality if uh, I had a better table or my husband would buy better plates for me or if I had a better house, but I'm a victim of my circumstances and so I'm excused. I can't do that. Well, couldn't you take somebody out, you know, for hospitality at a picnic or uh, couldn't you just... Let them come in to see your shambles of a house. It doesn't matter. Out in Ethiopia, some of the most precious uh, expressions of hospitality that I received were from people who had hardly anything. I remember one lady, she was hunting all over. And we said, don't worry, don't worry. But they always felt like they had to give hospitality when they came. And, uh, well, maybe I shouldn't tell that story. Um, (laughs) All she had was a glass of milk. It was mastitis and it was all sticky and slimy. Wow, that was hard to get down. But once we drank it, she was just delighted and could relax because she had extended hospitality. But, you know, if somebody that poor can extend hospitality, every one of you can as well. We ought not to be giving the kinds of excuses that we do. Just emotional from lack of sleep. Don't worry about it. (laughs) Um. But anyway, when we, begin to, when we begin to realize that God has tailor-made every circumstance in our lives for our good and for His glory, you suddenly throw out the language of being held captive by our circumstances. You say, no, God wants these circumstances. I've got to figure out how to use them to the max. You know, the Apostle Paul and Silas were taken into into jail and they could have thought ah that's too bad i can't do any more ministry i can't be traveling around they didn't take that attitude at all they said okay god's narrowed down our focus through these circumstances he wants us to maximize ah these soldiers are a captive audience and uh, they can't get away from our preaching they're chained right to us and so what they did is they said how can we use our circumstances to the best paul said i'm not a prisoner of rome he said i'm a prisoner of jesus christ god's made your circumstances perfectly suited for the kind of ministry he wants you to be engaged in so don't think of yourselves as being being kept uh, captive uh, by your circumstances uh, <clears throat> Don't give excuses. Okay, the eighth principle. We must develop an eye for opportunities for witness. And I won't spend a lot of time on this, but uh, we had a guy by the name of Jim Moss who was a retired missionary. He was only a member for two years in our church, but he and his wife had a profound impact upon our whole fellowship. Uh, That was back at Trinity Presbyterian, the first church that we had started. And this guy just saw opportunities for witness everywhere. It was just unbelievable. I remember one time we were emptying out Jim Schaefer's house to be moving somewhere else. And Jim Moss, within two minutes of our going back and forth, I had taken a couple of loads back and forth, he was engaging somebody in the gospel as he's carrying stuff in. And I'm thinking it was so natural how he did that. I said, why can't I see those opportunities? But he was always looking. He was saying, Lord... What do you want me to do in this situation? Is there any way I can invest the grace of God into the lives of the people who are around us? Now, some people have the gift of evangelism. They're going to be much, much better at it than, than maybe you will be. But all of us can seek to having an eye for opportunities. 
to share. The ninth principle of missions is that we must have faith in God's ability to do the impossible. You think, oh, that crotchety neighbor next door, there is no way he's ever going to convert. No, God, the God who converted the Apostle Paul, (laughs) he can convert your neighbor as well. Uh, We do not have any record prior to this time of lepers being healed. But this was not an obstacle for the girl. She says, oh, that my master were with a prophet who was in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. Now, what made her so audacious as to make a suggestion like that? I mean, if she had said Phil Kaiser could heal him of his leprosy, that would be audacious. If she had said the king could heal you of your leprosy, that would be audacious. But she knew a lot about Elisha. She'd heard all of these stories of things that had happened, and I think she had her head screwed on straight. Let me give a little bit of a history that has happened so far. She had witnessed Elisha prior to this, chapter 2, Verse 14, Elisha parts the Jordan River, walks across on dry ground. Now, which is harder, to do that or to heal somebody of leprosy? Chapter 2, 19 through 22, he heals the waters of a bad spring. Chapter 2, 22 through 25, he sicks two female bears on 42 juvenile delinquents. <laughs> which is harder, to, you know, to get these uh, two riled up bears to do just what needs to be done or to command the microbes that are causing the leprosy? Uh, In chapter 3, he shows Israel and Judah how to destroy Moab's armies. He does it in a miraculous way. Chapter 4, 1 through 7, he performs the miracle of the continually replenishing oil. What a wonderful story. This widow's pouring out oil, and they're just bringing more and more pans, and it just never runs out until they run out of pans. Incredible. Uh, And people heard about this. In chapter 4, verse 8, is the healing of the Shumanites... um, Uh, uh, raising up of the dead Shumanite son. Now, which is harder, raising the dead, healing from leprosy? Uh, Chapter 4, verses 38 through 41, we've got Elisha neutralizing the poison that the prophets have already eaten. They're on their way to death a whole lot more quickly than Naaman is. Uh, Chapter 4, verses 42 through 44, you've got the story of Elisha feeding 100 people with 20 loaves of fishes. So, She's convinced Naaman can do it if God so wills, but she's seen the power of God at work over and over again. She also knows that uh, through the prophecies of Elisha, God is going to be bringing uh, judgment upon Israel and mercies to the Gentiles. Maybe that's why God has me among the Gentiles, is so that His mercies can flow uh, out there. But it's really not the amount of faith that is necessary. It's the presence uh, of faith in God's ability to change the hardest of hearts and to change uh, cults into Orthodox churches. That's happened already. Uh, We were part of birthing a cult into Orthodoxy in China and the Worldwide Church of God here in America. God can do these kinds of impossibilities. Can God change America back into a Christian nation, make it even more Christian than it's ever been before? I think absolutely, yes, He can. God's grace is powerful, and if we're to be used in missions, we've got to have an absolute confidence in that. Last issue in place was this girl's submission. Now, we've already seen that she submitted to God's providence without growing bitter, but she also submitted to God's human authorities that were placed over her. Now, she did not... I want you to notice, submit to the gods of Naaman. Because it's always submission in the Lord. It's not an absolute submission. 
submission in the Lord, no matter what, you know, whether it's uh, parents, you know, if they want you to steal or murder. No, it's submission in the Lord. Parents, husbands, employers, governments. But all of us are called to be in submission to God. And when our hearts are, have that attitude of submission, we're going to be looking, Lord, what do you want me to do? In the Psalms it says, don't be like the horse and mule that have always got to have bit and bridle. No, be like the horse that just with the lightest touch of the reins or just the glance of the master's eye. That's where the horse goes off. Now, we started the sermon by asking you if you felt that you were insignificant. Let me assure you, that is not a disqualification for you being used. Quite the opposite. When you say, Lord, I am weak, but your strength is made perfect in my weakness, you will be used by the Lord God Almighty. Let's pray. Father God, thank you, thank you, thank you for your grace that is so richly manifested uh, in this uh, girl's life. And even though there's not a whole lot that is told about her, uh, we pray that we would be able to put on these ten kingdom attitudes that she had. Fill our hearts full to overflowing with the, the, the power and the grace and the goodness that uh, you have showered upon us. May it be our desire to drink so deeply of Christ that out of our innermost being would flow rivers of living water. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.